2 Corinthians chapter 4 begins with the word therefore. And, of course, when you see the word therefore, it should be obvious to you all that that word is there for a reason. And it is. It's really referring back to what he had just finished saying in chapter 3 regarding the glory of the new covenant, which we talked about the last time. So the new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant, is a far more exceeding glory uh, because of the fact that it is an eternal covenant that God had provided. And we talked about that in quite a bit of detail. So I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to remind you that Paul is using that information that he shared last time that we looked in chapter 3 as he approaches the topic that he's going to be sharing in chapter 4. It's basically a continuation of that same theme. And here he presents the the light of that glory in the gospel of Christ and the, the light that shines in us because we are really a reflection of the light of Christ. Remember, he said at the end of chapter 3, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So that glory, that shining brightness of the glory of God uh, is in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we have that light reflected through us to the world around us. And so that's the uh, thing that Paul is going to be focusing on here in this chapter. He says, therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 4, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, so we do not lose heart. I... uh, particularly like that phrase, we do not lose heart, because sometimes it gets pretty difficult uh, to walk uh, in this world in which we live, uh, reflecting that light of Christ, because of all the evil that surrounds us, because of all the troubles that we have to deal with on a daily basis, because of all the things that are going on uh, in our nation, in our local local, uh, towns and in our state, There are many things that are very, very disturbing to me and I trust to you as well that are taking place all around us, Uh, whether it's legislation that we don't agree with or wars that are being uh, fought or being rumored about. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, China has been apparently sending a high-altitude surveillance balloon that has been hovering over, well, it was over Montana, Uh, It's still hovering somewhere over the United States, although they haven't disclosed where. But they're keeping track of that because uh, it's a very concerning thing when you have a foreign country that considers itself to be somewhat of an enemy to uh, be sending a surveillance balloon over our territory for no explainable reason other than perhaps to try to find out some information that they likely are searching for. So that's the kind of things that are going on. Cyber technology, the uh, things that are taking place in in the electronic world over the Internet, things that are taking place with places like North Korea and South Korea uh, coming to a a real uh, difficult situation that could result in somebody making a wrong move that would ultimately result in perhaps a nuclear exchange. North Korea has already threatened that, and so has the United States against North Korea if they attack South Korea. Things going on in Taiwan that are still very, very serious 
threatening our um, uh, ability to control the uh, seas around the uh, South China Sea for the purpose of maintaining the amount of traffic that we rely on for our commerce. If things go wrong there, things will get shut down very, very quickly. And so there's all kinds of things besides the Ukrainian war, besides the fact that it appears that Israel has been targeting uh, military sites in Iran to uh, destroy their capability of manufacturing drones and other kinds of equipment that they could send to Syria, and also, of course, the constant bombing of Israel in Syria uh, and the retaliation that seems to be taking place by the Iranians um, against even U.S. forces in Syria. Another issue is the Syria, uh, issue with Saudi Arabia and uh, Yemen. And the uh, Houthis are, are very aggressive and they want to take out Saudi Arabia. Right now, Saudi Arabia is a moderately uh, good uh, neighbor for Israel, but that could change. And none of these things are pleasant to see and observe. And they oftentimes, uh, when they come at such a, a great rate of uh, incidences as they have been over the last se several weeks, and I'm sure more will be coming uh, as time goes on, but it causes a lot of hearts to be uh, very, very fretful. And the Word of God tells us that we're not to fret. We're not to be fearful. We know who wins in the end. And uh, all of those things are expected because they were told us in the Word of God. But Paul says, we've received mercy. As believers in Christ, that mercy has been extended to all of us. We, all of us, have received mercy, and we do not lose heart. We know the end of the story. We've read the last chapter of the book, and it says we win. So we're not to fear, but we are to realize that these are troubled times. And how do we live for Christ in such troubled times? Well, Paul is going to be talking about some of that uh, in this chapter. And so as we move forward, in verse 2 he says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Paul is saying here, we have things that have been revealed to us that the world knows nothing of. So we have an advantage that the world doesn't have. You know, there are some frightful things going on, but we can know because of what God's Word says about those things that we can have a peace that passes all understanding. We can still maintain that joy, unspeakable and full of glory that is promised to those who believe. We have a very, very distinct advantage over those who do not know Christ. Uh, those things that are hidden to them have been revealed to us. And that's an amazing thing when you think about that. You know, in Romans, I believe, chapter 8, Paul talks about the fact that um, we have great advantage over those who are without Christ because the sufferings in this world are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us in the last days. Paul also says elsewhere that 
that the earth groans. You know, all creation groans over those things that are taking place. And it's all because of the sin of mankind. But eye has not seen, Paul says, nor ear heard. But we have had those things revealed by his spirit. So it's important for us to understand that the world is blinded by their unwillingness to accept what God's word says. And it says their, their minds are blinded by the God of this age. That is a reference to Satan, the enemy of our souls. Now, he is against the church, and he comes against us in many, many different ways to uh, cause us trouble. He accuses the brethren. But not only is he accuser of the brethren, he also is the one who blinds the eyes and encloses the ears of the unbelieving world. They also are responsible for that blindness. It's not just Satan and his having done that. If it were just the fault of Satan, as it was so many times said by one of the comedians of old, Satan made me do it. That ain't the case, my friend. Satan isn't the one who makes you do it. He may cause you to think about doing it, give you the temptation to do it, but the sin that you do is your responsibility, not Satan's. But he does work very hard at keeping them in that state of blindness. And he tells us again in verse 4 that we who believe have the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should that light shine on them. In other words, the light would shine on them if they would relief release the, the, uh, the mindset that they have with regard to their rejection of Christ. But Christ is indeed the very image of God. Remember one of the apostles of, of Jesus came to him and he said, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus said to him, have I been this long with you and you do not know the, the fact that I am the Son of God? And as such, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus says, I am the express image of the Father. Hebrews tells us exactly that very same thing. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews tells us this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, and he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews writer says, Jesus is the express image of the person of God. And he created all things. Colossians, John, uh, Paul writes there that Jesus created all things. It tells us in the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that New Testament revelation that Jesus was that member of the Godhead who not only took part in the creation, but orchestrated the creation did the creating of all things. 
John agrees with that in John chapter 1 of his great gospel, that Jesus created all things. There's no question in anyone's mind who knows the Word of God, or at least there should not be, that He is the Creator. He is the God who made all things. And all things exist by Him, and He holds all things together by the Word of His power, He tells us here in, in, in uh, the first chapter of Hebrews. So this is a very important thing for us to understand, that Jesus is the very glory and image of God the Father. He goes on to say in verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves bondservants for Jesus' sake. That's important too. If Paul was saying, I'm not here to talk about myself. I'm here to lift up the name of Christ. And that is the way that every teacher of the Bible should approach that teaching, that instruction that is brought forth before the people. Never to elevate the teacher. Always to elevate the message, not the messenger. And so this is what Paul is telling the Corinthian church, that he himself, though he is the apostle of God, he has been chosen by God and given the authority by God to proclaim the gospel. The light of Christ's gospel is made known by him, but he doesn't use it to elevate himself. He doesn't use it to put himself on a pedestal. No man should do so. I always have maintained, and I will, I hope, continue to do so, that each one of us are on a level playing field. We're all one in Christ. No one is of a higher level of authority or position of greatness than any of the others. We're told in the Word of God to never allow ourselves to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We're to humble ourselves and to realize that we're all one. There is no difference between any one of us with regard to our status, with regard to our position in Christ Jesus. That is important. Paul has emphasized that here, and so should it always be emphasized. Now, in verse 6, he goes on to say, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is... Paul's desire that the light of Christ would be shining brightly in all of those who proclaim the good news and all of those who believe the good news. Each one of us should be reflectors of that great light in this world that is a world that is filled with darkness. Let the light shine, Jesus told us. So let your light shine that they will see that light and glorify your Father in heaven. Verse 7 continues on and he says, But we have this treasure, this treasure of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I love that expression. He uses the fact that we are like an earthen vessel. And earthen vessels were made of clay. They were disposable. They would be used for a season and then thrown away. You can go to several archaeological sites in Israel, for example, and many other places in the world where they have dug down into the various levels of uh, earth that had been covered over the centuries, and you will find uh, various places where there are strata of all kinds of clay, broken 
pots, vessels that were thrown into the garbage heap. And so there's evidence when you see that of a place where they discard all those pots that were cracked or broken. And over the years, that just built up into a large pile that got eventually buried, and now the archaeologist's spade has uncovered them. Paul is saying, we are like those cracked pots, earthen vessels. That's all we are. We're made of clay. The basic elements that comprise our human body are the same elements that you can find in the ground today. Jesus made it very clear that when we die, our body goes into the grave and it decays. Paul tells us that. John tells us that. We're told throughout the Word of God, in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, we're told that Adam was given that information as well. From dust you were, that from dust you came and from dust you shall go. Death will be the ultimate result of our lives. It's the end of every life. And when we do die, our bodies will indeed decay and will return to the dust from which we came. Our spirit, our soul, goes on and lives forever. And that's the beauty of that which the New Testament reveals to us. The New Testament gives us that information with regard to what happens after death. It was a mystery that no longer is a mystery to those of us who believe. And we have this treasure. It is a treasure that we have in our hearts. And it has been given to us by the Lord. And it should be precious. That's why I love to say and believe that I have hidden God's word in my heart, that I might not sin against him. And his word is indeed precious to me. It is a gem that I want to hold on to for the rest of my life and rely on on a daily basis. I love the word of God and I want everyone who knows Christ to also have that great love for his word. And it is a treasure to us who believe. It is something that God wants us to understand and apply in our lives on a daily basis. Get into his word, know his word, study his word, and if you don't understand what you're reading, seek his help because the Spirit dwells in you to reveal his truths if we are willing to seek after them. Ask and you shall find. Seek and or ask and, and it will give and be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. We have this treasure in our earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Verse 8 says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying that it is hard to serve God in this life, in this age, in which we ourselves are now living. And in Paul's day, and for Paul in particular, the ministry was a very, very difficult thing. He was pressed on every side. He was indeed crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. How could he say such things? How could he be able to endure such pain as he had to endure? 
Later on in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, we're going to see Paul give a list of many of the things that he had to endure. He had to endure terrible things. Uh, I think it was five times he received 40 stripes less one. Three nights in a day, uh, three nights in the depth of the sea, um, uh, in shipwreck. He was beaten. He was left for dead after having been stoned. He was a man who suffered greatly uh, for the sake of the gospel of Christ. But he says in, in Philippians, in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, that it was his desire to know the fellowship of the suffering of Christ and the power of his resurrection. Now, I like the idea of knowing the power of his resurrection. I'm not so sure I embrace the idea of suffering. But it is definitely something that if it is our expectation, as it was Paul's, that he would give us the strength to endure. When Paul cried out to God one day because of a problem that he had, he called it a thorn in the flesh. He said, I cried out to God and I asked him three times to deliver me from this. And the answer came from the Lord Jesus, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul realized when Jesus said that, that he could endure and he was able to endure, even in his weakness. He said, for when I am weak, then he is strong. And so that's the attitude that Paul has had. Although there was another day when Paul did say that he and Titus were going through such a terrible difficulty, and we saw that in um, the Corinthian letters, that he they, and Titus despaired for their lives. They thought they were going to die, but God brought them through that. Paul oftentimes came to a place where he was facing death, but the Lord encouraged him, the Lord strengthened him in every single situation. That's why Paul says, we were perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. You know, the church is being persecuted all over the world. We haven't seen persecution in this country, but I don't doubt that it might come. I think that perhaps... Uh, as you continue to see some of the things that are going on, you may see more and more uh, likelihood of persecution to begin to take hold, even in this country. In Canada, people have uh, been put in jail for having taken a stand for Christ. Pastors have been uh, persecuted, and it's not that far away from our land. And we are looking at possibility of such things with the legislation that's being considered in the areas of uh, not allowing pastors to speak uh, what the Word of God says with regard to homosexuality, with regard to same-sex marriage. There was a First Baptist church ministry that is being brought through a great deal of difficulty right now because they took a stand by saying that marriage is for man and woman only. And that stand that they are taking has been a great problem for that church because uh, nobody outside of the church is willing to accept that. And that's going to spread. Part of the problems with us is that we probably don't speak loudly enough. And we've allowed a lot of things to take place without speaking out. And unfortunately, uh, the church hasn't really been as effective as I think it should have been, would have been, had we been led by the Spirit of God to take a stand. And my prayer is that the church in these latter days 
will be more and more willing to take the kind of stand that Paul here is talking about. Being willing to be pressed on every side, but not crushed. Be willing to be perplexed with all kinds of troubles surrounding us, but not in despair. Be willing to allow persecution to come our way, but not to be knowing that we would not be forsaken by the God of glory if we were persecuted. They can strike us down, but they will not destroy us. What is man that we should fear him? There's no good reason for us to have any fear whatsoever. Turn with me to Psalm 27 for a moment and take a look at what the writer of the book of Psalms in that great chapter says with regard to fear. Chapter 27, the book of Psalms, tree. Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Now with a God like that, what can man do to us? That's the attitude that Paul has it should be the attitude that we all have as well. And frankly, if we don't have that same attitude, we won't be willing to take a stand. We'll be too afraid because of the fear that we allow to overwhelm us. But we are not to be overwhelmed. We're overcomers. We're more than conquerors. We are His valiant warriors. Even like Gideon. And remember, when Gideon was called by the Lord in the Old Testament's book of Judges, he was one of the judges of Israel. But when he was called, he was just a farmer, a lowly individual who thought very little of himself. And when the Lord appeared to him, he came to him and said, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. Can you imagine how Gideon must have thought, where did that come from? He never thought of himself as a mighty man of valor, but God, through his grace and mercy, made him to be so. And he brought a great victory through Gideon because he was willing to accept the promise of God in his life. So it should be for all of us. Over and over again, we find Old Testament and New Testament examples of men of faith, women of faith, who have done great things for God, who really had nothing in and of themselves, but it was by faith Read through chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews and see for yourself how men and women of the faith trusted in their God and resulted in great victories on God's behalf. So Paul is saying that is how we should have our continuing walk with God to appear before men in such a way as this. Well, verse 11 says, For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul is saying that even though things look like they might end in a tragic death, it's not tragic 
because through death, God brings life. And keep in mind that we all must die. But that's not the end. That's just a door through which we all must pass. None of us have been on the other side of that door. So there is some uncertainty, some reason for us to wonder, well, what's it really going to be like? But we have the Word of God, and we have a hope, a blessed hope. We have the promises of God's Word that says, all will be wonderful. There will be no tears, no sorrow, no death, no sting of death, no victory of death. Nothing will be like it is now in those days of glory. Our bodies will be glorified bodies like unto His glorified body and we will be like Him. And we'll see Him as He is. We'll see Him face to face. We'll worship Him. We'll glorify Him forever and ever as our King, our Savior, our Master, our Lord, our God. What a wonderful prospect we have. So death has no real sting at all to us who believe. Verse 13 says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. The promise of resurrection given here by the Apostle Paul. Not just them, the Corinthian church, but all believers of every age, every time that anyone has given their heart to Christ as their Lord and Savior, accepted the salvation offer of Christ that he made through the death, burial, and resurrection that he was willing to endure, and through that resurrection prove that everything that he had done, that he had accomplished for us, was indeed completed without any doubt. He won the victory. We could not have done so. We could never have earned our salvation. Aren't you glad that God made it so easy? That's the new covenant that he spoke of in chapter 3 of this great uh, record that we have before us. The new covenant that God had promised through Jeremiah, revealed by Jesus Christ when he broke the bread and poured the wine into the cup at the Last Supper, saying, this is my new covenant, the new covenant that was spoken of by God, that covenant that would not require you to be obedient to the law in order for you to receive the salvation, but that covenant which he would ratify through his own death and resurrection. And being that mediator of that covenant, we have the promise of God's willingness to accept us in the Beloved by virtue of what Christ himself has done for us. What great news this is. And the world is blind to it. Can you imagine that? We once were, but now our veils have been lifted and we want so many of our friends and our neighbors, our people who are around us, who we work with, uh, who we rub shoulders with in the world. We want them to know. We want them to see. We want them to hear. Oh, may the Lord of God, uh, Lord God of Israel, draw them to himself in these last days through us, through our testimony, through our witness. Let God be glorified in that. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus, again, I say in verse 14, he will also raise us up with Jesus. That's the promise of God's word. We will in that day be raised up together with him and there we will be with him forever and ever. 
And verse 15 says also, For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Are you thankful? We all should be very, very thankful for what Christ has done. More than thankful. Our gratitude should be expressed to Him on a daily basis, an hourly basis, a moment-by-moment basis. We should be giving praise to God for His wonderful mercy and grace every breath that we take. And that is true for all of us who believe. I want to go back to the book of Romans. And again, I'd like to turn with you uh, with you to uh, chapter 8. And I'd like to read verses 18 and following with you for just a recap of what we've been saying so far. He says in verse 18 of chapter 8 of the book of Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation waits for that revealing that Paul just talked about in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. He goes on to say in Romans chapter 8 in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Let that be the case in all of our lives. Eagerly await that redemption that is ours, the promise of His coming, and the beauty of this great truth that has been revealed to us. Let it be so, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly. Remember when Jesus said, in answer to the request of His apostles, teach us to pray. He gave us the model prayer that we know as a, of, of as the Lord's Prayer. It's really the Apostles' Prayer. It's what we all should pray. And it goes uh, in a very, very familiar way through several different aspects of the kinds of prayer that Jesus suggested we should pray. And among that, he prayed at the very beginning. He showed that we should pray for the Father who is hallowed. His name is glorious and holy. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. He told his disciples to pray that prayer or pray for that kind of expectation that his kingdom would indeed come. If he hadn't told them that the kingdom has already arrived, why would then we need to pray for his kingdom to come? Well, the truth of the matter is, his kingdom has come, but not yet on earth. He reigns. But he will reign on the earth. And that is the kingdom reign that we are to pray for. Let your kingdom come, Lord. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, he goes on now in verse 16 of chapter 4 of Second Corinthians saying, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Same phrase as what we read in verse 1. We do not lose heart. Why? Because even though our Outward man is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. This outward man, the body that he's referring to here, is indeed a temporary, like a tent, fading, falling apart, decaying 
It isn't eternal. It will not last forever. We have a certain number of days given to each of us, and these bodies will bear uh, all of those things that we must have to deal with uh, throughout our years, however many years that may be. But they are indeed temporary, subject to disease because of sin, subject to decay because of sin. But Paul says we have an inner man, an inner man that is being renewed day by day. Our soul is eternal. And Paul is saying that every single day we're getting closer and closer to that glory that we will one day have. We're being transformed. And again, that's what he said earlier in the same uh, chapter, that we are being transformed by him into the glory of the Lord. In verse 18 again of chapter 13, uh, chapter 3 rather, he said, from glory to glory, we have been and are being transformed into his image. From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's his work in us. He is doing it. He is accomplishing it. He began a good work in you and he has promised to complete it in that day. Sanctification is a process. Every single day we should be getting that much closer to the reality of this promise that God has given to us in this passage. We are being renewed day by day in the inner man. So he says in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Again, that's exactly what he had said in Romans chapter 8, which we just read a few moments ago. We're being changed from glory to glory. And it's a light affliction that we're enduring here. Paul says, light affliction? Remember what he had to go through. And as far as he was concerned, it was not that much of a problem because he knew where he was headed. He knew to whom he belonged. And he was bearing that willingly, that pain, that suffering, bearing it even as Christ bore the pain of the cross, willing to go to the cross, looking beyond the cross, knowing that he would receive that glory that had once been his before the foundation of the world. That glory, that eternal weight of glory, is a promise to all of us. Lastly, he says in verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. But the things which are not seen are temporary, or rather the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. Isn't it interesting that Paul says that we have eyes to see that the world cannot see through? Those eyes aren't physical eyes like what we're seeing physical reality. Uh, those things that we see with our eyes in the physical sense are all temporary. They all will be going away. But Paul is saying we see things that are eternal. In the spirit, we have a vision of the hope that is ours. And it's not just we who are believers in Christ who have that hope. That hope has been a reality since Abraham, since the days of the, of the man who is known as our father in the faith. Take a look with me in Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, beginning with verse 8. Now several people don't 
really accept the idea that Paul wrote this. I believe it was Paul. I like to say Paul wrote this. If it's somebody like Barnabas, that's okay too. I'll be corrected. I'll stand corrected when I get there in in glory. But uh, I believe it was Paul who wrote this. And Paul here says in verse 8 of chapter 11, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Remember, Abraham was in the land of Ur, which was some 600 plus miles to the east of the land of Israel, in what is now the territory of Iraq, near the uh, uh, Euphrates River. Abraham was there and God called him and told him, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. He didn't know where he was going. And that's what the writer of Hebrews here is saying in verse 8 of chapter 11. Then he says in verse 9, But by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. He got to that land. God revealed that this was the place for him to stay. And it would be his land. And he dwelt there as in a foreign country. He dwelt in tents. It says he dwelt in tents with Isaac and his grandson Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So the promise that God had given to Abraham, he extended to Isaac, his son, and to Jacob, Isaac's son, and onward from him to the generations that followed. The promise was that that land would become theirs. But they were temporary in the land. They didn't actually own any of that land, with the exception of Jacob buying a lot to uh, uh, eventually live in. But uh, And Abraham bought one lot where he could bury his wife, um, Sarah, but that that is all. They were given the whole land, but they did not take possession of the whole land. That wouldn't come until 450 years after Abraham. But the promise was given to Abraham. And so in verse 10 of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, he says, For Abraham waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Notice what he's saying. He wasn't really expecting Anything physical, he was expecting something from a spiritual perspective. A building that God had created. A city that God had made. That was the promise that Abraham was seeing by faith. Yes, the promise would be a physical reality for his descendants. As far as Abraham was concerned, he was going through the land and he was not living in that land as though he possessed it. He was looking forward to the promise of something far greater, the city which God had made, the land that God had given to him, a city whose maker is God and whose foundation was from the hand of God. That is the beauty of what is being spoken here in this wonderful chapter. Job, a contemporary of Abraham, In Job chapter 19, Job kind of laments, saying, oh, that these words of mine would be written on stone in a book somewhere. Well, they were, Job, and we have that record. Job goes on to say that though he will die and his body will go into the grave, he says, after I am dead and gone, the one who he believed in would stand on the earth and he would come and Job says, I will see him with my own eyes. Job is identifying with the resurrection that is promised to all of us. 
it was known back then. And Abraham believed in the resurrection. He believed that God would raise Isaac up from the dead. The reason he was willing to sacrifice Isaac is because he had faith in God to raise him up from the dead, Hebrews tells us. All of these things are true for them and for us as well. We have great promises in the Word of God. We have been given much hope, much blessed hope. It is ours by faith. We will never, ever have reason to doubt that God's promises are yes and amen. All of it has been fulfilled that has yet been fulfilled and is more to be fulfilled. And we're standing in the days when much of that which has been promised is indeed becoming a reality, even in our present hour. Things are being made ready. The stage, the final act is about to unfold. And we can see the signs that God has promised before us in these last hours. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world around us. But aren't you glad you know what God's Word says with regard to how we are to live and to expect the great blessings of God in spite of persecutions, in spite of being pressed on every side, in spite of the perplexities of life, in spite of the persecutions, in spite of the troubles that come our way, in spite of the lack of fuel for our furnaces, in spite of uh, the power grid failure, in spite of the lack of food on our shelves, in spite of running water, whatever it may be that comes our way, do you know that you can trust in God? Do you believe that even though you may die in these things that may be coming our way, you have eternity with Him to look forward to? Is that not enough? Let it be so, my friends, in Jesus' name. Amen.